Good evening. How are we? Pretty good. Hey, if you need a Bible, we'll just get those in your hands immediately. We've got a couple uh, gentlemen that would love to get you a Bible. Just put your hands in the air if you didn't bring yours. You can always use the fake one on your phone if you want. If you've got your Bible, and when you get a Bible... We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 in our study. There's a, there's a lot of people here for Thanksgiving week. I kind of thought it'd be like me and the band. So, good on you. A lot of you are like, nope, done with family time. That was three days ago. <laughs> All right, don't lie. It's okay. You can be honest. This church. Oh, it's cool. Great to see you guys. Glad I'm leaving. I live thousands of miles from my family. I love my family. So sometimes I kind of I miss them on these times, you know, the craziness and stuff. So be thankful if you've got them in town. Um, love them while they're there. And, um, but good to see you here as we're uh, continuing our study. If you haven't been with us, we're going through a study called Faith and Failure. Just super encouraging, I think. Everyone just leaves just peppy, right? Everyone's, Dane wrote a song like, I am a failure, and everyone's like... Yeah, right? Um, but he finally gave I've been bugging him for like two years to write me a song because he wrote one for Zach like immediately, and I'm going to go song. So he got one. So, But yeah, we, we're, uh, we're at week three of a four-week study called Faith and Failure. And what we're doing is taking a look at um, just a couple. Um, there's a few more, but we're kind of touching on them. A couple of the, the just kind of the, to be honest, these are some of the most well-known scenes in the Bible is is the these these missteps of the apostle Peter these these failures as I've likened it you know these like 18 month old you know moments where he just hits hits the ground and just stumbles out in faith um, and so we're taking a look at a couple scenes as we go through the life of of um, or at least some of the life of the apostle Peter and so um, tonight I hope that we kind of we, we turn a little bit because I know it's been a little heavy. I know, as I said last week, and I think the first week too, it's been a lot of like scraping back and uncovering the issue of failure in some ways that we do that. And we're going to see it again tonight, but, but I hope at the end of this, you see that we're going to turn. Um, the series is really going to turn and we're going to start focusing more on how Jesus responds in those failures, not so much about surfacing the failure, which there's a place for that. Um, but I hope tonight that we kind of do take that, that turn in terms of how Jesus responds, how he's there to minister, how he builds us back up, especially next week in, in, our, in our last week. You're really going to see a heavy emphasis on that because um, I don't just want it to be like, hey, welcome to church. You're a failure. Go home. You know, right? Like no one wants to go to that church. I don't want to go to that church. I don't want to be the one preaching at that church, right? So um, the gospel is not that you're terrible and Jesus fixed it. That's not the whole gospel, you know? A lot of times that's all you hear in church these days. Like, hey, you're a sinner, but Jesus fixed it. Everyone cool? Go home. You're like, ugh, I got to work tomorrow? What's the point, you know? And so hopefully tonight we start to take that turn um, but first, let me pray, and then we'll uh, we'll jump right in. Um, if you're if you're just here for the first time, I'll do a quick recap, but we'll pray first. Um, God, just um, thank you, um, just thank you above all. I think of the big picture first. Just thank you for who you are. Just thank you that you're in control. Thank you that you're not shocked by any of this. You never were. You're still not. Thank you that you see the story from 
creation to completion. You always have. And I just pray tonight that we would rest in your sovereignty, that we would not dwell on our failure, but that we would rest in your sovereignty and, and just how great and how big you are and the idea that you're right there with us. The only God of any religion where we don't get to you, you've come to us. And so, um, Holy Spirit, would you go to work not only on me as I teach, um, but on those the rest of us that are here to learn, uh, myself included, because I've certainly learned things in the moment of teaching. And that can only happen by your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you comfort us tonight in the midst of our failures, but also encourage us and exhort us um, and, and have us place Jesus back on his throne in our lives. And so we just ask that you go to work and love on your people in a way that only you can love on your people. For your glory, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, as I said, we're, we're, we're taking a look at faith and failure, a four-week study through some of the scenes of the Apostle Peter. And if you remember, the Apostle Peter is kind of a, he's kind of a grungy guy. He, he's, he's not like, you know, America would like to kind of think of a lot of the apostles and Jesus. I mean, just kind of floating around pretty in a glowing dress, you know, man dress. And he was a fisherman. He, he worked with nets all day. He worked with fish. He, he stunk likely. He, he probably cursed quite a bit. He was out on the water a lot. He was a sailor. He was, he was kind of like the modern day truck driver. He wasn't up on fashion. He didn't have a Pinterest account, right? Like he just, he, he was a roughneck. He was a roughneck. He worked with his hands. He wasn't a political guy. He wasn't necessarily a, a, a scholar of any sort. Probably didn't have a degree. He fished for a living. He fished for a living. And so you've got this, 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 apostle called by Jesus himself and we saw in week one that he look he struggled with his faith before he followed Jesus and he struggled with his faith after he started following Jesus thank goodness right imagine if he just struggled before he found Jesus and then everything was epic after Jesus everyone's like I, I can't relate I'm out right see you in two weeks when we start a new series right he struggled with his faith before following Jesus and after following Jesus Jesus. And so the first week we took a look at when Jesus went out and, and, and he told Peter, he said, look, cast your net over the side of the boat. And Peter sort of said, look, we already did this. It didn't work. I know you're like a rabbi and it's probably a really cool teaching moment for you, but it's not working. And Peter failed. He didn't trust what Jesus said. Perhaps at the core, he didn't believe Jesus really was who he said he was. Because if we actually in our hearts believe that Jesus is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipotent, he's everything, he knows all, if he asks you to do something, you're just like, yep, no problem, right? If we really, if we really sunk in our hearts, how big, when he asks us to do something, it's a no-brainer. And so, so, so Peter was likely struggling with this. Well, he, you know, but look, but I've seen that the, I throw the net out and nothing comes back. And so he struggled. He didn't trust Jesus. And then he said, but he said, all right, you know, I'll do it. I'll do it. All right, fine. You know, the Bible says, you know, read your Bibles. Okay, so I'll, I'll read my Bible. Okay, the pastor said I should pray. All right, I'll try it. I'll, try, I'll see what happens. All right, I did it once when I was six. It didn't work. I'll do it again. Oh, we'll see what happens. All right. And he, he throws his net out. So much fish calls in reinforcements bring other nets not cute nets like thick rope nets breaking jesus says look i've come that you may have life and life more what abundant i'm gonna drive that home have to because a lot of us are like oh come to jesus and i can't do anything fun right that's how the world looks at it 
Why would I? Why would I join? Why would I join a church? I can't do anything fun after that. It's terrible. I can't. My Friday nights look radically different. It doesn't make sense. <clears throat> Jesus says, "Look, it's actually going to be better. It's going to be better when you trust what I say. When you follow what I say. I know all." <clears throat> It's like, it's, like, it's like a dad, look, when, when the first time I saw Ethan, he was like 18 months, the first time I saw him run toward a street, all he saw was fun. All he saw was a good time. All daddy saw was what was going to happen. And I knew, and I stopped him from his fun to protect him. And the Bible isn't a book of rules, it's a book of revelation, and it has precautions and it sets up structure to protect and love on you, not to just hamper you from having fun. And so these things are put in place. We have, we have rules in my family put in place so that my kids will flourish, not feel inhibited. Flourish in our family. That's my role as a dad is to see my wife and my children flourish, not be bogged down with rules. And God reveals himself as who he is and his attributes and the way that he wants us to reflect him in those ways are ultimately good, great, and grand for his glory. But a lot of times we just see him as, well, I can't do this, I can't do that. Jesus says, look, cast your net out again. Try it again. Dig into your Bible again. Pray again. Get rooted in community in your church again. If you've tried it before and you've been burned, welcome to church. Right? You're like a church, a bunch of hypocrites. I know, we got room for more. Come on in. Right? No one ever said it wasn't. And he says, cast your net. Do it again, even though I know you've seen it, you've tried it. And Peter does it, and out comes life, life more abundant. And then we see he's called to follow Jesus, and then he starts following Jesus. You gotta love, look, Peter just drops everything in that moment. He's like, all right. Look, Peter was married. We see that Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So, so Peter had a family, even though they stayed in the region of Galilee. He was out on the town. He's like, hey, I'm giving up the family business of being a fisherman. It's like, I've got a small business. I'm just going to give that up, and I'm going to follow my pastor around town and just sleep on people's couches. There's not many wives that are like, yay, honey, cool, great, you know? Where, where's the paycheck going to come from, right? This was a bold act of faith to just follow Jesus, to just follow a rabbi in an agrarian culture where you lived and died on your trade. And he, and he jumps in. And then we see Jesus sends the apostles out on the boat and Jesus scampers up a mountain to pray. And then what happens? A storm hits the Sea of Galilee. They still hit the Sea of Galilee the same way today. I've been, I've seen it. I've been on the Sea of Galilee. It's still, it's always windy there. Second lowest, only lower, or only higher than the Dead Sea but this is the lowest freshwater lake on the planet, some 700 feet below sea level. The mountains span up to 2,000 feet above sea level on the side of it. And so you get these cold mountain airs that rush down the slopes, and then you get the warm air that comes from deep, 700 feet below, and it creates tornadoes, it creates these windstorms, and they get hit with one of these storms. And then Jesus comes surfing in without a board, right? Just comes gliding in, being all gangster, and just like, hey guys, right? What's up? And they're freaking out, and they think that they're going to die again. They had done this before, and Jesus was napping. It's one of the things I love about Jesus, serious about his naps. All right? In the middle of a storm, they're like, we're going to die. Jesus, get up. And he wakes up. He's like, stop it. All right? And he goes back to bed. All right? They were in this predicament again. Jesus, we're going to die. Come in. And then Peter, just bold knucklehead. You got to love him. Just bo- I'm coming out. Tell me to come out. I'll come out there. Right? We're all going to die. I'll just, I might as well be out on the water when I die. So I'm coming out. Jesus says, fine, then come. 
and he steps out in faith and he's walking on the water. He's in the middle of a miracle being orchestrated by the creator of all things. Jesus can say and do anything he wants with his own creation. Let's tell you what, we're going to walk on water today. It's a miracle. We live upside down. The world is upside down. Okay? That may answer a lot of your questions about how gnarly it is out there. We actually live upside down. Miracles are not like bending the laws of nature. They're actually restoring the way God wanted it to always be. And so we live upside down in a sinful, fractured world. And then for a moment in a miracle, he restores everything. And as creator, he just stands on the water like, are you kidding me? I put this together molecule by molecule. I invented molecules. Of course I can stand on this thing. And in that moment, he's got, Peter's got his eyes locked on Jesus and he steps out and he's walking. And the danger is not the waves, it's not the storm, as I said last week. Those didn't put him in danger. What put him in danger is when he focused on them. Another way of saying is when he took his eyes off Jesus in the middle of the storm. That's what's dangerous in trials today. Jesus never said, look, I'm here now. Christian life's going to be awesome. You're never going to hit storms. No, he's standing there in the middle of them. What Jesus does say is keep your eyes on me in the midst of them. Peter took his eyes off, as we all would. Let's be honest. You realize you're rollerblading on water. You look down at the waves. You look at the wind. I can't imagine what the waves looked like. They must have been monstrous. And he took his eyes off Jesus. Now he's in danger in his trial. Now he's in danger. And he begins to sink. And the Bible tells us Jesus went in immediately. He took no pleasure in watching Peter sink. He takes no pleasure. He's not there to say, look, you need to learn this lesson. Where you are right now, that trial you're in right now tonight, you just need to sit in it for a little bit. You need to sink a little farther. You need to get up to about here. Then I'll yank you out. Jesus, he says, immediately. Peter cried out to him. He says, help me. It's a great prayer, by the way. Great prayer. The Bible says, let your words to God be few. I don't know where we came up with 40-minute prayers. Bible says, let your words to God be few. Help me. Jesus is like, immediately. He jumps to some of you in a storm right now. You're resisting. I think I can swim. I think I can swim. You can't. You can't. There's a storm and it's raging. He says, just call out for help and Jesus will come in immediately. So you saw Peter struggle with faith before he's followed Jesus. And now you see him struggling with faith after he follows Jesus. As I said last week, look, can can we give ourselves a little bit of credit? We're like, I struggle with a faith in a guy that walked the earth a couple thousand years ago. Peter struggled with his faith while in the midst of Jesus. While there physically, seeing the incarnation, he struggled. We let ourselves off just a little bit, not much, just a little bit, but be comforted by the fact that even the disciples who followed him around for years, watched him perform miracles, still struggled in their faith. They still got it wrong. And we saw Jesus then then take them northeast of the Lake of Galilee, took them up to another region, and he turned around and he said, look, who who do people say that I am? Now, Jesus wasn't confused. He's a good teacher. He sets up a better question. He didn't need the disciples to affirm his identity or rely on the opinions of others to affirm his identity. we, We saw him turn around and say, look, who do men say that I am? They said one of three things. Some think you're John the Baptist, which is this epic national reformer. He was a political guy, spoke to the spoke to the man, spoke to the powers that be. John the Baptist. Called him to repentance. 
Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Just an amazing miracle worker. Again, seemed to, to bend the law of nature. So some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets, which is just a bold proclaimer bringing word from God. New word from God. That's what a prophet is. God's word through flesh pointing to God's word as flesh. That's Jesus. All prophecy points to Jesus or it is false. All true prophecy points to Jesus or it's false. So some of them say, look, you're, you're, he was a, he was, you're a bold proclaimer of God's word. You bring good word. And all of these things are generally good. Like if someone comes up like, hey, Pastor Mark, people are thinking you're like John the Baptist, right? I'd kind of be like, whoa, you read my blog, right? Like, yeah, I got, got some issues with America, actually. You know, I don't have a blog, by the way. Okay. Man, they think you're like Elijah doing these miracles. Like, I'm not that good at poker, but, you know, like, I'll try a couple tricks. Like, these are kind of complimentary things. Like, any man being put in the same bucket as these guys, that's like a good day. Like, you're like John the Baptist. You're like Elijah. You're like Jeremiah. People are like, really? Wow. I didn't realize. But these are entirely insufficient when it comes to Jesus. Not merely a national reformer or a king. Not nearly a miracle worker, but creator himself. Not merely a prophet bringing new word from God, but the Messiah, God come as the word of God. And then Jesus turns around and says, but who do you say that I am? See, that was where he wanted to go. And as I, as I, as I pressed us last week, that is the most, that is the thing, I've read the, I've, look, the whole Bible. If you can find a question which answer has more ramifications than that one let me know it is the most important question in all of human history who do you say that i am that's what they say that's what your professor says that's what your parents say that's what your coworkers say it's what your friends say it's what your family says it's what they said at the thanksgiving dinner it's what the people in your class said but who do you say that i am And then Peter, right? Bold proclamation of faith. You're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Son of the living God. He said, you're both Messiah and you are God. Two claims in that one sentence. You're the Messiah, the one come to be the sacrifice for our sins. And the one who came to be a sacrifice for our sins is the Son of the living God. You are God himself. Not just another man. But then what happened? After that. What happened? Anyone know? Peter rebuked Jesus, didn't he? He rebuked Jesus. And we took a look at that last week. And Jesus said what? Get behind me, Satan. And Jesus gave us the answer as to why it was so dramatic. He said, look, you have your your mind set on the things of men, not the things of God. And so again, as I pressed on us last week to take those things that that we're headed toward, that we focus on, and Jesus says, put those behind me. I'm out front. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus says, I'm in the front of all of this. Put your desire and your pursuits for the things of this world behind me. And so I pray that 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 shook us to put Jesus back where he belongs, which is on his throne, above our addiction, above our anger, above our promiscuity, above our lust, 
above all the issues that we drag to the table. And tonight we're going to jump into a scene, and, and I do want to stir in you. I want, I want you to think, like, like raise your hand if, if you nailed it in faith this week 100%. Like, you just, you crushed it, this was your week. Raise your hand. Calling you out, because I, I got questions, and I, want, I need to take notes from you. So I want, I want some tips, right? It doesn't, look, seven days is long enough. It's going to take about seven minutes after I'm done, and we're going to just start right back over. But I want you to think about that just this week. Don't, you don't have to go big. Just go this week. I want God, I want you to work together. I want you to stir up something. I want you to bring it to the surface. And then tonight I want you to drop it off. And I want you to go through that exercise just with something that happened this week even. A way in which we failed in our faith. A way in which we didn't respond as Jesus would have responded. That we didn't love the way that Jesus would have loved. That we didn't show grace the way that Jesus shows grace. That we didn't show mercy the way that Jesus shows mercy. That we didn't serve the way that Jesus serves. That we just flat out didn't care like Jesus cares. This week, bring that up. Because I want us to drop that off at the foot of the cross today. And so we're going to jump into this and you've got to fast forward so jesus has been ministering we were in what chapter 16 last week we're jumping 10 chapters ahead a lot has happened you need to know at this point this is the sum of everything you need to know people have been conspiring to destroy jesus and they're going to hang him on one claim what is that they're going to hang him on one thing what is that feeding the poor befriending the outcast saying he's god saying he's God. You need to know that Jesus was put on the cross for no other reason than stating and claiming he's God. And people today are like, he never actually said he was God. Could do it. I can, again, I said this last week. I got a slide for you. I can show you 20 times he absolutely did. And they knew it. They were in the room. Are you kidding me? You're claiming to be God right now? Just tell tell us you you messed up a little bit because you know what's about to happen if you don't relinquish on that. Jesus said, it is as you say. He was headed to the cross for saying that he was God. That as Peter declared, he was Christ and son of the living God. Which is blasphemy. Which is blasphemy for the religious folks. They believed in one God and this guy standing in front of them couldn't be the almighty God in the heavens. And so it's all headed to the cross now. And I just want to read, we're going to start in in verse 36. I just want to read the scene in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I've been there. You can look it up. You can do your Google image thing. Okay? Click on Google images. Google Garden of Gethsemane. The trees there have been dated over 2,000 years old. I've been in the garden. There's cool little pathways and there's buildings around it. You can go to Israel today and very likely see the tree that Jesus was near. The tree. They don't know for sure, but these, but all, even the secular scientists are like, these are some 2,000-something-year-old olive trees right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible describes this way better than I could. Jesus is headed to the cross to pay the penalty for all of mankind, everything we have thought, said, and done for all of eternity. Jesus is going and is about to face that. In verse 36, 36 it says, Then Jesus came with them, to a place called Gethsemane. Now that just means the olive press. And said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee. And he began to to be sorrowful 
and deeply distressed. See, the name of the garden means olive press, and this is where Jesus would be pressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. That's Jesus' plea. That's it. Right? A man that's facing utter annihilation just says, and, and look, you see this. You see this today. You see this in prison ministry. People just say, look, just, just be with me. Just be here. So stay here and watch with me. And he went out a little farther and fell on his face. This is Jesus. And prayed saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And what cup is he talking about? The cup of the crucifixion? The cup of a beating? The cup of a scourging? The cup of being punched in the face, mocked, spit upon? The cup of the crown of thorns? What's the cup referred to in the Bible over and over and over and over? It's the cup of God's wrath. Jesus was not facing a cross in this moment. Ultimately, he was facing the wrath of God. And he says, take this cup. Look, he's saying, look, hey, God, God, Father, if there's plan B, let's go with that. If there's plan B, let's go with that. Jesus, in all his humanity, does not want to be crushed. 100% man, yet 100% God. That's not where he stops. He says, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless. Not as I will, but as you will. And if Jesus himself, as God, is submitted to God, how dare we think that we don't have to be? That's the picture of submission. Not your pastor, not your spouse, not your friend, not the person you look up to. When we do premarital counseling and we talk about submission in the wives, we talk about the, the, the head of the household is submitted to Christ, the wife is submitted to the husband, the children are submitted to the wife and the dad. We talk is because of Jesus, because of nothing else that we're submitted. Because if he himself could be submitted, how dare we think that we don't, we don't need to be. We're above that. And he says... Not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 42, again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? And behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's all coming down to this. It's all coming down to this, and Jesus knows it. And the disciples are failing as they've been stumbling the whole way like a toddler trying to walk. In verse 47, it says, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Clearly, they thought Jesus was dangerous. They brought a massive mob to grab a Jewish rabbi. The Jewish people had expected a political overthrow. 
That's why many of them struggled and still today struggle with accepting Jesus as the Messiah for a litany of reasons, one of which was we thought he was going to come take us from under the boot of Rome. And Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. He didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to raise up a heavenly kingdom. And so they figured this guy, the Messiah, if they think he's going to be the Messiah, then he's going to certainly, he's going to come at us. So they bring a mob of people, medieval style, with swords and clubs. Verse 48 says, Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. There are no words more empty in the Bible than greetings, Rabbi, on the lips of Judas. There are no words in the Bible more empty, more depraved. Greetings, Rabbi. And how does Jesus refer to him? And he kissed him, but Jesus said to him, friend. It's not like Jesus didn't know. He just told us he knew. Jesus forever, forever befriending the outcast. He says, friend. Why have you come? It's not like Jesus didn't know. Jesus asks questions because he wants to stir in you a discussion and an answer. It says, Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. It's, it's interesting that if you look it up in the Synoptic Gospels, <clears throat> which are the same scenes from different perspectives, but even in John, which is not considered one of the Synoptic Gospels, we see that they didn't put their hands on him until they had already fallen on their faces before him. John 18, 3 through 6 says, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. It's like a witch hunt to get this, the Jewish rabbi that's been healing people and feeding the starving. The world is always threatened by Jesus. And they came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that they would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. They drew back and they fell to the ground. The creator of the universe stood there and said, I am he. And they fell. And they had a moment, they had a time for repentance. And yet they got up and they put their hands on him instead. It says, and suddenly, verse 51, one of those... Now John 18.10 identifies this as Peter. One of those. I told you he was, a, he was a scrapper. Like a lot of them didn't even realize he had a concealed sword permit. All right? One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. Struck the servant of the high priest 
and cut off his ear. See, it's interesting. Peter was willing to fight for Jesus, and yet Jesus just asked him to pray for an hour, and he wasn't willing to do that. He was willing to go to battle with a small mob for Jesus, but he wouldn't listen to Jesus' call to get on his knees and pray. I identify with that. I'll go to war for Jesus. And he says, tell you what, how about a 15-minute devotion in the morning? I'm like, I'm busy. Let me know if you need a swordsman. I got to get to the gym. And it's not even working, clearly, right? I'm willing to go to war for Jesus at times. Are you willing to defend and fight and yell about and convince and Jesus, and yet we won't even pray? I struggle with this. I will, I will declare definitively right now, I am the least prayerful pastor you'll probably ever meet. Now, I, I pray fairly consistently, like I, I've joked, but I'm serious. On the motorcycle, I, I try to take First Thessalonians to heart that I'm just constantly praying. But in terms of diligent, disciplined prayer, which Jesus modeled, I'm not talking about religiosity, like I've got to do my 15 minutes so that God's happy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if I'm reflecting as a Christian, a little Christ, the Jesus who went up on the mountain consistently and prayed, I really should be better about that. Not because I have to, but because by the grace of God, as I get closer to him, I'll want to. See, Jesus was always tapped in via the power of prayer. And he says, Peter, look, you're willing to whip out a sword for me? Again, you're focused here. I need you focused here. I asked you to pray back in the garden. Get in line with what's going on here. All you see is bad guys and I've got a sword. Right? It's it's like us watching the news. All you see is bad guys and you're just trying to figure out how to get a sword. You're You're not even in prayer about it. I'm not even in prayer about it. I've picked up arms for this country. I've almost died for this country. That almost comes easier than getting on my knees before God. He says, I want you focused here, Peter. And Peter's like, no, let's cut, let's, let's cause blood. Let's, let's, I'll take on this whole mob. And he's focused again, like going back to last, he's focused on the earthly things. As you're going to see, Jesus is going to tell him, like, look, there's, there's something bigger going on here. You're taking your eyes off me again. And so he took out his sword and he cut off his ear. And in Luke 22, verse 51, and Luke was a doctor, a medical doctor, and so he noted these sort of details that the other gospel accounts don't. In Luke twenty-two fifty-one, he said, Jesus touched his ear and he healed him. He restored his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Let's do a little math. More than 12, we'll go with 12. One legion, about 6,000 angels. One. 12 legions. Puts it at about 72,000 angels. In 2 Kings 19.35, we see that one angel in one night killed about 185,000 soldiers. So when Jesus says, look, at bare minimum, what could happen right now, Peter? Sort of just base level, just get the war kicked off. 
I could pray to God, he could send me enough angels to decimate 13,320,000,000 troops in one night. Just to kick it off. Just to show people we're serious. He just wants to start with 13,320,000,000. That's the minimum 12 legions of angels could do. Jesus says, it's that big, Peter, and all you're focused on is a couple of mobsters. All you're focused on is a couple of mobsters. And this is fascinating. He says, do you not think that I can now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me but all this was done and he says this again for a reason he emphasizes this again and I believe he's teaching the disciples as much as he's instructing the crowd he says but all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled you thought the cross was man's idea The cross was first and foremost God's idea. Predestined before man even existed. Understood before we even invented it. He says, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. In Acts, Peter is preaching an epic sermon. An epic sermon where he is railing on Jews. He's railing to the Jewish people. He is railing to those who cheered at the death of Jesus. And he says that Jesus was delivered by the determined plan of God. We have our responsibility, but he said this was first and foremost God's idea. And as an exercise, I want to go through, there's a couple hundred, how many should we do tonight, prophecies that Jesus fulfilled? What would be a fun number? I already have the number. I'm just messing with you. Let's go with 44, right? I thought that was fun. sounded cute. We'll do fun. We'll do 44 fun prophecies fulfilled by Jesus for fun. And I've got the Old Testament, and I was going to read them, but I'm not. I've got the Old Testament verse and one or two New Testament verses that show the fulfillment. If you want that, come up afterwards. Give me your email number or your email. I'll send it to you. 44 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled given by the Old Testament written hundreds if not thousands of years before he came hundreds of years hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and you want to say that this is a coincidence that the Messiah would be born of a woman that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem that the Messiah would be born of a virgin that the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham that the Messiah would be a descendant of Isaac that the Messiah would be a descendant of Jacob that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, that the Messiah would be heir to King David's throne, 
that the Messiah's throne will be anointed and eternal, that the Messiah would be called Emmanuel, that the Messiah would spend a season in Egypt, that a massacre of children would happen at the Messiah's birthplace, that a messenger would prepare the way for the Messiah, that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people, that the Messiah would be a prophet, that the Messiah would be preceded by Elijah, that the Messiah would be declared the Son of God, that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, that the Messiah would bring, to, would bring light to Galilee, that the Messiah would speak in parables, that the Messiah would be sent to heal the brokenhearted, that the Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that the Messiah would be called king, that the Messiah would be praised by little children, that the Messiah would be betrayed, that the Messiah's price, money, would be used to buy a potter's field, that the Messiah would be falsely accused, that the Messiah would be silent before his accusers, that the Messiah would be spat upon and struck, that the Messiah would be hated without cause, that the Messiah would be crucified amongst criminals, that the Messiah would be given vinegar to drink, that the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. This is, that's before crucifixion had even been invented. Before the, that the Messiah would be mocked and ridiculed, that the soldiers would gamble for the Messiah's garments, that the Messiah's bones would not be broken, that the Messiah would be forsaken by God, that the Messiah would pray for his enemies, that the soldiers would pierce the Messiah's side, that the Messiah would be buried with the rich, that the Messiah would resurrect from the dead, that the Messiah would ascend into heaven, that the Messiah would be seated on the right hand of God, that the Messiah would be the sacrifice for all sin. That's just 44, and I have the Old Testament verses and the new ones to confer with it. That's just 44 written hundreds of years before Jesus even entered the scene in the incarnation. 44 fulfilled by Jesus. Immediately right off the bat, it was all coming down to this. Jesus says, these scriptures must be fulfilled, Peter. This is how it has to go down. This is the way it was always going to go down. This is how the scriptures would be fulfilled. See, the whole Bible is about Jesus. I don't know if you've heard that. I don't know if I've said it recently. You need to know the entire Bible is about one thing, Jesus. The Old Testament, the New Testament, and Revelation, however you want to dice it, splice it, all the books, all the chapters are all about one thing. Keep in mind the extent of the Bible written over some 1,500 years by some 40 authors who at times generally didn't know each other written in three different languages on three different continents. No internet, no email to make sure you're getting your story correct as you're faking it. 1,500 years, 40 authors, three languages, three continents, one subject, zero contradictions. That's the Bible. The whole Bible, the whole Old Testament was pointing to this moment so that when it happened, none would have excuse. I just didn't realize it. I didn't know that in the hundreds of times that you said it was going to go down like this, that it was actually going to go down like this. Jesus says, this is the point of all of Scripture. He is the point of all of Scripture. It's why we call him the Word of God. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, look, it has to happen like this. I imagine on some deep level, he appreciated the effort. We had a saying in the military called, good initiative, bad judgment. Right? Like you get that new you get the new private in town, he's like wants to do something all epic and he breaks it. And like, hey, good initiative, bad judgment, homie. Right? You shouldn't have done that. Jesus is like, look, good initiative, I get that. Bad judgment. Did you study your Bible, Peter? Did you know that? This this look this you think you're gonna save me from what the Bible's written pointing to? This crucifixion? 
Jesus says it twice, that this must be done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Look, everything about our faith, everything about the person and the work of Jesus rests in this moment. And I've got a couple notes I want to wrap up with this. Is that we see in this scene a few things. If you go back with me, let's go back to verse 51. And suddenly one of those, that's Peter, who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the ear of the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Look, the first thing you need to know is that Jesus is not shocked by your failure. He's not like, oh, shoot, I can't use him or her now. I didn't realize that was going to happen. And they're completely discredited in front of the world. Can't use him at all. Jesus is not shocked. He weeps. He is hurt. He has emotions. But he's not shocked at our failures in our faith. I can't believe you did that. Jesus knew you would. So he's not shocked. Some of us think we shock God. Some of us think we can hide from God. We'll admit things to God. Right? Jesus isn't shocked by this. He knew Peter would lash out and want to spill blood on his behalf. Jesus isn't shocked with the failures that take place in your faith walk. He's not shocked. But notice that Jesus healed the ear. Jesus is here to restore the mess that the failures in our faith often cause. Jesus is here, whether those are for people outside the faith, for you yourself, or people within the church. Jesus is right by you. Now, it doesn't mean you get to be careless. There's a call to be diligent. There's a a call to be loving and gracious and merciful. All attributes of God on display in his people. So it doesn't mean you get to be careless and just shotgun approach it and start just blazing people with Bible verses. Just Bible thumping all day long. We clearly don't need any more of that. Turn on the news. But you need to know that Jesus is there restoring the messes, not shocked by them. And they're restoring the messes from our failure in us, in our community, and even to those that persecute him. As one more sign of his grace and mercy to those that would even reject him. And I love how he says, or do you not think that I can now pray to my father and he will provide with me more than 12,000? What's Jesus saying? Saying, look, Peter, I got this. I'm in control. I'm in control. See, a lot of times, our failures in our faith make us feel like we're losing control. When in actuality, all they do is uncover the fact that we've never been in control. We just trick ourselves into thinking we are in control of these things. Therefore, when a failure then scrapes back that veneer, we're like, oh, shoot, I'm losing control. Pastor, I'm losing it right now. Give me back. I was like, you are never in control. Jesus is like, I can command the entirety of the angelic army right now. He says, I'm in control of this. God has been writing a much bigger story than you ever imagined, Peter. A much bigger story. And it's ugly. It's going to get bloody, but it's all been determined as Peter would preach on the day of Pentecost. It's been determined. It doesn't mean that we're not active, that we're not a part of it. 
It just means that it's happening with or without us. One of the most loving things I can tell you is that the gospel does not depend on you. Everyone's take a big sigh of relief. Thank goodness. The weight of the entirety of the gospel for all of humanity's salvation does not rest on your shoulders. Get over yourself, right? My job, this is one of the most freeing things I can realize and Zach and I can realize is we're not in charge of saving people from the pulpit. We're not. Our job is not to save people from the pulpit. God saves people. We're called to proclaim the good news. God will take it from there. He wants us active in the gospel, but it does not depend on us. It cannot be hindered by us, nor empowered by us. It is driven from start to finish by Jesus. Thank goodness. He wants you involved, like a good dad wants help from his son, right? A good mom wants help from the daughter. But it doesn't mean that the the child is necessarily contributing one way or the other. The project's going to get done. Why? Because dad said so. The kid can come along kicking and screaming, or they can think that they're helping. And I love that with my little boys when they want to help do things, help move, help push my motorcycle back into my garage after my battery's out. Now, is Ethan actually pushing a thing? No. Let alone Asher, who can barely keep his feet under him. Daddy's pushing the whole thing forward, but they think they're help, right? And I want them involved in this work. It doesn't mean that motorcycle's not getting in that garage. That's the worst gospel analogy, by the way. Use that on none of your friends. There's, a, there's like a garage and a motorcycle and a couple kids, and they're pushing. And you should just come to church. It's crazy. Right? <laughs> Don't use that. You love that when your kids help, but they are not the determinant of whether or not that task is getting done. The gospel's been said, complete, signed, and sealed. It's active and it's ongoing, and God wants you to partake in it, but it doesn't depend on you. That should free you up. I don't know why we're not evangelizing. It's not on you to convert people. It's on you to proclaim the truth. God will convert people. That's clear. And so just know that God is in control. Our failures cannot derail God's active gospel. You need to know that the gospel did not take a shot when you didn't respond in a loving manner. The gospel wasn't paused or put on hold when you treated someone the way that you did when you should not have. The gospel is active, it's living, it's breathing. And our failures in faith cannot derail it. They cannot derail it. Jesus has gone before us as he would now go before the disciples to the cross say, this is happening. And we try to get in the way and we start cutting people's ears off. Jesus is like, no, this is happening. It's all headed to this. You need to know Jesus isn't done yet. He's not done yet. Some people think we're in Revelation. I don't believe so. I think you're going to know when you're in Revelation. It's going to be no question. There's going to be dragons coming out of oceans and mountains getting thrown around. It's just people are like, yeah, but in Iran with the one guy with the elected and, the, and I read on a star and then with the, the blood moon and then if you get... No, you're going to know when revelation happens. Jesus isn't here yet. He will be. It's all headed to that. It's all headed to that. And heaven's not a place for people that are afraid of hell. It's for people who love Jesus from saving them from it. You can't scare anyone into heaven. But all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus' second coming. And He is coming. And He wants us involved in this process, this redemptive, restorative process. He wants us putting ears back on people. And don't go touch anyone this week. It's going to get awkward. 
He wants us restoring what it means to be in a, in a girlfriend-boyfriend relationship. He wants us redeeming what it means to be in a secular workplace. He wants us to restore what we're called to be as sons and daughters and husbands and wives and friends and family. He wants us to be part of this redemptive story, actively pursuing people. Why? Because Jesus actively pursues people. And so take heart, your failures cannot derail God's ongoing gospel. And notice what Jesus did not say to Peter in that moment. He didn't say, you screwed the whole thing up, it's over. Peter, you're out. You're, you're out. Forget my inner circle. You're not even on the team anymore. I'm getting new people. Your salvation is not jeopardized by your failure. Your salvation is in absolutely no way jeopardized by your failures in your faith. The Bible says, he who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. And in the original language, no man means no man. He who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. The Holy Spirit does not lose a fight. That was not a fight. That was a sacrifice offered up. Jesus says, they're not taking my life from me. I'm giving it to them. You need to know that beating happened once for all of eternity. It will not happen again when Jesus returns. Your faith is in no way, the security of your salvation is in no way jeopardized by the failures in your faith. Our security is not found in what we do or what we don't do. The security of our salvation is found in what Jesus has already done. And Jesus was headed to the cross. And Jesus was on this road in the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that he would be crushed for the iniquities of all mankind for all of time. But I want you to remember this was according to God's definite plan. And in all that scripture leading up to this moment it came down to two people, two persons Jesus and the Father. And what happened on the cross was not merely a crucifixion. See, men had died on crosses before. Men would die on crosses again. I'm not going blasphemous, but you need to hear this. Jesus merely and physically dying on the cross does not save you from your sin. Jesus physically dying on the cross does not save you from your sin. He didn't say, take this crucifixion from me. He said, take this cup from me. And as he hung there, what did he say? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, you've heard me say it before and you're going to hear me say it again until Jesus comes back. The Bible doesn't say he represented your sin on the cross. He was an epic picture of your cross. He was sort of like a crazy metaphor for your sin on the cross. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to become sin. The reason the cross was so ugly is because it was our sin, mine included, on display. And God can do one thing with sin, destroy it. And so God the Father destroyed Jesus on the cross. Why? Because in that moment, he was the physical reality of your sin. 
He actually became your sin, and God crushed him. From the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he crushed him on the cross. And in doing so, those who accept that sacrifice, your sin has been crushed. It will never be held against you. And Jesus was put into a grave which was created for sinners. And since he wasn't a sinner, it couldn't hold him. And so he came right back up three days later. And the Bible says he defeated in death he who had the power of death. And on the cross, he made a spectacle of demons. He made a spectacle of sin. He made a spectacle of Satan. And so we can fail in our faith. Why? Because it hasn't been secured by what we do or what we don't do. It's secured by what he has done. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. As we go into this time of of adoration, I just pray that that sinks, it, it, it just, it gets to a new depth in our heart. That though we're going to fail, it will not define us. Jesus, you will define us. And so in those moments when we feel like we're losing control, would you grab us and just simply whisper, you were never in control. It's been about me the whole time. And I want you to be about me for all of eternity. And so I pray we would mark a new beginning tonight. I pray that if those who have never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they would do so tonight. Holy Spirit, would you flip that switch in their heart? Say, you are who you say you are. You did what the Bible says you did. You were crushed for all that I've done wrong in thought, word, and deed. And so I cling to that faith despite my failure because it's about what you've done, not what I have done. Jesus, behind, lifted up. We're going to sing to you now, and you're on a throne, resurrected, in a glorified body. I can't wait to see you again, but until then, we have work to do displaying who you are to a lost and broken world that needs to know. So Jesus, behind, lifted up now for your glory, not for ours. Amen. We have communion, which I say every week is nothing magical. This is simply a representation of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And so we take bread as he commanded as a remembrance of his body which was broken so that his blood which was pure because he had no earthly father and his bloodline ran all the way to heaven. It was pure and it was poured out for all sins past, present, and future in accordance with scriptures that those that would be saved would be saved by faith alone. And so we take this, we take the bread first, we take the juice second as remembrance of the fact that we're reconciled through faith in Jesus despite our failure. Amen? Let's sing.